Thank you for joining the Dark Light Podcast. Here at the Dark Light Podcast, you will find information about the absolute truth. Hang on tight as we go to discover the light in the darkness. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God King James Version 1st Corinthians 13 verse 13 And there remains these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, New King James Version. For I am not ashamed of the gospel or of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the just shall live by faith so now when we ask the question does the bible really say that we are saved by grace the answer is no This is one of the reasons Martin Luther left the Roman Catholic Church and posted his thesis on the door of the cathedral. The Protestant Reformation came out of the fact that intelligent, God-fearing, educated as limited as their education was, educated people such as Martin Luther recognized that there was a problem within the theology of the Roman Catholic Church and the interpretation and understanding of the reading of the Bible. Today, people like to sing the song Amazing Grace How Sweet the Sound that saved a wretch like me. We sing this song as if it's from the Bible. As if it's telling us some sort of biblical truth. So when we look at these four verses Romans, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians. What we begin to see is that 
The verse in Ephesians that simply says, For by grace are you saved through faith. The emphasis is that we are saved by God. And so theologians have inserted the word grace as a theological construct. And by that I mean that the word grace never appears by itself. It is not a thing, but rather a position of how God views you, the lowly sinner. So let's understand something about theology. Theology is created by well-meaning individuals who have preconceived ideas about what they think the Bible actually says. And then they create theology based on their perception of what they think the Bible says. So when we say that you are saved by grace, the word grace which is used today in the English language in many, many different ways. For instance, many people will say before meals, when they're going to pray a prayer over their food, let's say grace. Versus a verse in Ephesians that says, for by grace are you saved. So does that mean that every time you pray over your food, that somehow it's saving you? The answer is no. And most people don't think that. And yet the same word grace is being used. Or we can say that a person is very gracious. It means kind, loving, compassionate. These are all synonyms for the word grace. But grace as a theological construct does not appear in the Bible by itself. It always appears in relationship to a viewpoint, and it's God's viewpoint. So that God so loved the world, he exhibited grace by sending his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him, that's called faith, will not perish, but will have eternal life. So grace is a perspective, God's perspective, of how God looks at the sinner. And since Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, God views the sinner through Jesus Christ. And that viewpoint is called grace. So let me be clear. Grace is not a thing like faith. And when we go to 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 13, theoretically, according to the British, the most unluckiest unlucky number, 13, we see that faith, hope, and love are the three constants that never disappear. And of course, my question is, where's grace? It's not there. It doesn't mean that 
Grace is not a perspective, theologically speaking, but it doesn't exist as an actual thing, whereas faith, hope, and love do exist, and they're very real. Faith is a real thing, a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. That is the biblical definition of faith. It's a real thing. It's the items behind the wall. It's the things you can't see, but you know they're there. They're real. They're actually real things. And you put your faith in that. You believe in the realness of salvation through Jesus Christ. Hope, it's something we have inside of us that we believe that things will get better, things will change, we'll have a future. We hope in some better tomorrow. And then there's love. And love was so real to the Greeks that they had to divide it up into sections. So they ended up with agape love and filial love and porno love. Oh yeah, the Greeks made that all up because they realized that love was so unexplicable and so mysterious, but they knew it was real. So they tried to divide it up into little boxes and define it in its very strange, particular ways of being used. I love my dog. I love my cat. I love my mom, my dad. I love my wife, my husband. All of these types of love are viewed by the Greeks as different types of love, but still very real. Whereas when we read the Bible in its entirety, love is not divided up into sections. Love is one thing, and love is God. Let that sink in. So the next time some well-meaning pastor says to you that you're saved by grace, you can smile and know that he's lying to you. That's not true. You're saved by faith. Grace is God's perspective of the sinner. That's a theological term. Love and faith and hope are real, lasting things that we can hold on to and use to recreate ourselves. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward because the memory of them is forgotten. The dream 
of every theology of every ancient mystical art is the attempt to play God and find immortality. The Egyptians did it, the Greeks did it, the Romans did it, and they all failed. But when we look closely at this idea, even in modern times, we see that transhumanism is an attempt to prolong the lifespan of a human indefinitely, even through cyborg-type technology and nanotechnology. Computer systems are designed with the distinct purpose of expanding the capability of man's thinking so that the original lie recorded in the book of Genesis where the serpent says to Eve thou shalt not surely die is still the theological scientific philosophical perspective of all systems of thought. But what does the Bible actually say? When we look at this verse here in Ecclesiastes, on the surface level of this verse, it is very clear that the living know that they will die. There is something about being alive and the process of thinking that go together. But the dead, they know nothing. So this comparison between life and death is very clear in this verse. And the Bible is adamant that there is a complete and utter separation of thought, consciousness, life between the living and the dead. We see in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, 19, 20, that God forbade individuals from accessing witches, mediums, spirit mediums. Why? Because they claimed to be able to speak to the dead. And hence we have the famous story of the witch of Endor, where Saul tried to drum up Samuel and most evangelical Christians think he actually was able to do it through the witch of Endor, but that's not what the Bible actually says. So when we look at this verse in Ecclesiastes, does the Bible say that the 
dead know something? That the dead are conscious? That the dead aren't really dead? They're alive in heaven singing songs to God? That's what evangelical Christians teach. When you die, you go to heaven. If you're a good person. And if you're a bad person, well, you know, you go to the other place. And you burn for all eternity. What does the Bible actually say? Does the Bible say that the dead know something? That they're thinking? That they're praising God? No. The Bible says the living know that they shall die. But the dead know nothing. So let's explore this a little further. Revelation 20 verse 5 The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years were complete. This is the first resurrection. New International Version states, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Genesis chapter 2 verse 17 But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So, in the light of these verses having to do with life and death, we must ask the question, does the Bible say that dead people are actually alive in heaven or hell or anywhere? The answer is no. So what's going on? How come all evangelical fundamentalist Christians claim that the soul never dies? Let's get to that and let's understand that the Bible clearly says the soul that sinneth it shall die. But let's look at these books and chapters in both the Old and the New Testament. They say the same thing. And yet, in the light of all of these verses, fundamentalist, evangelical Christians, along with Roman Catholics, claim that when you die, you're not really dead. Your soul goes somewhere and is still alive. But the Bible clearly says that your soul dies when you sin. And the Bible clearly says that the dead know nothing. 
And then we get to the book of Revelation and it brings up the first death and the second death. Now, modern day evangelical Christians, theologians, like the Dallas Theological Seminary, teach a theology that cannot even begin to explain what the first death and the second death actually are. And they're a thousand years apart, according to the book of Revelation. So the rest of the dead lived not again. Well, that tells you right there that when you die, you're not actually alive. You're dead. And one group of people were raised to life in what is known as the first resurrection. And they're called blessed and holy. And they reign with Christ for a thousand years. But according to evangelical Christians and their wacko theology, they claim that Jesus will rule over the good people and the bad people for a thousand years. The Bible doesn't teach that. It says the rest of the dead, and obviously if they weren't raised in the first resurrection, they weren't good, holy people because they are raised in the first resurrection. So who are all the people raised in the second resurrection? Obviously, they're bad, unsaved people. And the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Well, if they're not alive during the thousand years, then why is supposedly the Antichrist reigning over the world and evil people and good people? And the good people are supposedly raptured to go live in heaven while the earth gets torn up. But the Bible doesn't teach that. It says the rest of the dead bad people, lived not again until the thousand years were finished. So when the good people are reigning with Christ, they can't possibly be here on earth because the dead people are here on earth, dead. So the Bible is very clear that the living and the dead are two different classes of people. And the living can think and have intelligence and have life. That's why they're living. And the dead know nothing because they're dead. They have no intelligence, no soul, no anything. They're dead. And the memory of them is perished, at least for a thousand years. So let's be clear. When evangelical Christians tell you that when you die, you go to heaven, you can laugh at them. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says the living know that they shall die, but the dead know nothing. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. 
the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him it is very clear from scripture that when the translators use certain English words they're hoping that you don't know the background for where those English words are derived they're hoping that you don't understand Hebrew and they're hoping that you will insert the Greek notions over the Hebrew notions of the words themselves if you go back and listen to my previous podcast specifically the podcast entitled the soul deconstructed you will understand that in reality there is no thing which is known as a soul which travels thinks functions independently of the human mind and the human body there is no soul so when the bible says the soul that sinneth it shall die it's making a point that the human person soul is going to die if it sins aka the tree of knowledge of good and evil adam and eve died because they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil the word soul is often used in a naval military sort of way it is often said that when a ship goes down you know however many people were on the boat on the ship those souls died it's rarely spoken of as people dying we always say well there was 100 people that died no we don't say that we say there were 100 souls that perished and it's always in reference to ships sinking it's a naval british expression and this expression idea that souls exist apart from the body is a platonic philosophy not found in the bible itself but because the bible specifically the new testament was written translated tweaked into greek and then the old testament was squished into a greek translation of the old testament this combination of greek methodology and greek philosophy infiltrated the translation process not the ideas or the words themselves in the original languages but the ideas were tweaked into a greek 
notion, starting with the assumption that the soul is older than the body, therefore superior to it. That is a direct quote from Plato. So when the Bible says the soul that sinneth it shall die, it's really referring to the person, but it's making a point that in the event that you're using Greek philosophy and Greek theology, well, your soul's going to die. No matter what you think, your soul is going to die because it sinned. There is no natural immortality of the soul. Let that sink in. So when these fundamentalist evangelical Christians claim that, well, when you die, your soul goes to heaven and you're with God, praising God, and you're in heaven now, they're just lying to you because the Bible doesn't teach that. And anything that the Bible does not teach fundamentally is from the father of lies, the devil himself. Hath God not said? So when we ask the question, does the Bible say that souls never die? Or does the Bible say that the soul that sins, and the Bible clearly says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, when the soul sins, what happens to it? If in fact you use the Greek notion that a soul exists, well, if you're running with that idea, your soul can still die. And the Bible is very clear about that, even in English. The translators could not get around that. And so they clearly indicate that even souls die. That is fundamental to biblical theology. It's not taught in Baptist theological seminaries or any other evangelical seminary, but it's still the Bible truth. Revelation 21, verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who practices an abomination or a lie, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Exodus 20. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Matthew 12, verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2, verse 28. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It is the inferior institution 
man being the higher, for whose sake the Sabbath was appointed. But the Son of Man is Lord of all men and of all things that pertain to man's salvation. Therefore, he must of necessity be Lord even of the Sabbath, so that when he sees fit, he can relax or dispense with the obligations. It is true that for us Christians, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, has taken the place of the Sabbath, the ancient Jewish Sabbath. That's a direct quote from pulpit commentaries on Mark 2.28. You can find that at BibleHub.com. Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. commentary on what is the Lord's day of Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 by Christian ambassador Sean Bressall what is the Lord's day of Revelation 110 I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet Revelation 1.10 What is the Lord's day here? Look in the Bible, my friend. Do not blindly accept the idle speculations of men. Unquote. Coding from the same article. A theologian wrote the following about Revelation 1.10, Lord's day. This phrase appears in many early Christian writings and refers to Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection. Some have suggested this phrase refers to the day of the Lord, but the context doesn't support that interpretation. And the grammatical form of the word Lord is adjectival, thus the Lord's Day. Unquote. Continuing in the same article. His words are the complete opposite of reality. Note how he, like so many scholars, use Christian writings, quote-unquote, to develop their theology rather than using the Bible to develop their theology. Christian writings have no spiritual authority. They are not inspired of God. The Bible is inspired of God. We do not use the writings of men to define Bible terms. This theologian's suggestions are utterly ridiculous. Just what difference would it make if John were writing 
the revelation on a Sunday. What does Sunday have to do with Bible prophecy? Absolutely nothing. Friend, it's just vain speculations of men who are more interested in promoting their theology than teaching God's Word. The context supports the interpretation, quote, the day of the Lord, and does not support Sunday. Let me show you. And he continues on, and he tries to make an argument that instead of saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, we should change the phrase Lord's day to day of the Lord, indicating that it would be uh, possibly a seven-year period of time where John was actually in the day of vengeance of our God at the end of the world, the day of the Lord. Think I'm making this up? This is what this theologian is promoting. So he then says, it's not about whether or not the day of the Lord or the Lord's day is Saturday or Sunday, but rather it's a time period in the future which John was living in. So when we look at these verses, I will quote the conclusion of this writer, and he says, Sunday has nothing to do with the book of the Revelation. On what authority do people say Revelation 1.10 is a reference to Sunday? They have no scriptural support. Rather, they are repeating what others have speculated about the vessel. Actually, it is nothing but Roman Catholic tradition. Many thanks to Rome and Satan for all this confusion. Uncoat. Absolutely, continuing, the Sabbath is Saturday. It always was Saturday and always will be Saturday. Uncoat. So what we now see are three different theological interpretations of the phrase the Lord's Day. So let me be clear. When I asked the question, what does the Bible actually say? Did God say, remember Sunday to keep it holy? The answer is no. When I asked a question, does the Bible state anywhere that God changed the hallowedness of the seventh day of the week to any other day? The answer is 
No. So why is it that evangelical Christians, fundamentalist, so-called Christians, theologians, the world over, continue to insist that the Lord's Day is Sunday and that somehow Christians observe Sunday as a holy day because it's the Lord's Day. My question is, does the book of Revelation state that the Lord's Day is Sunday? And the answer is no. But in the book of Mark and many other places in the New Testament, Jesus clearly says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath day. And then theologians quickly point out that that's the Jewish Sabbath. And as Christians, we have Sunday. Why? Where in the Bible does it say that Christians must observe a hallowed Sunday? And the answer is nowhere. Let that sink in. So every denomination, every theologian, every theological seminary that teaches that Christians observe Sunday as a holy day are lying to you and they do not follow the word of God. Isaiah 8.20 clearly states to the law, Torah, and the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So out of the three theologies, one being the Lord's day is the Sabbath of the Lord, your God. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. The second idea that somehow the Lord's day is Sunday, just for Christians, not for Jews. And that third, the Lord's day is a long period of time in the future. None of those ideas can be ratified or somehow conjoined to each other. The truth is all that matters. The Bible is clear. The Word of God is clear. The problem is people, theologians, fundamentalist evangelical Christians, Roman Catholics, Protestants, by far the majority of Christians, refuse to read their Bible and actually see what the Bible says before it gets twisted, interpreted by crazy people. People who don't care about the truth. People who are following their father, as Jesus the Christ said, your father is the father of lies, the devil himself.
Be not deceived. The truth, although hidden, is knowable. You have been listening to The Dark Light. Thank you for joining us. Please like, subscribe, and tell your friends about The Dark Light Podcast. We would love to have you here each and every day to discover the light in the darkness.